Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Well, the search for podcast topics can be quite an adventure sometimes. It's not as difficult as it was when I first began. Well, the podcast is pretty well established now, and very frequently, publishers will contact me about spotlighting their author's book, which makes it a lot easier than it did when I first started. Other times, listeners will make suggestions, which is always very welcome. And often, I'll just spend my time searching Amazon with different keywords, looking for potential subject material. I also have a list of topics that are personally interesting to me, but for various reasons, I'm not yet able to cover. Either a decent book has not yet actually been written about it yet, or if it has, the author is unable or unwilling to talk with me, which happens occasionally. Sometimes I'll come across a well-reviewed book about a compelling crime, but learn that it was written long ago and the author has now passed away. One of my personal white whales is the Australian outlaw Ned Kelly, (laughs) whom I have tried for years now to do an episode about, with no luck yet. And every once in a while, a topic will come to me in a strange fashion. A few weeks ago, while in a store somewhere, I suddenly heard the song Hang Down Your Head Tom Dooley by the Kingston Trio playing in the background, and I started singing along with it. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley, poor boy, you're bound to die. And actually, thinking about the words I was singing, realized it would be a perfect subject for the show. My dad used to sing the song when I was little, and I wondered then about who Tom Dooley was, like many of you probably did too. And then I started wondering about him again, 
And as you will soon learn, it was the path that the author I'm about to speak with, Charlotte Corbin Barnes, took as well. So when I got home, I did a search on Tom Dooley and read a bit about him online and confirmed he was a real person. I found a place called the Whippoorwill Academy and Village uh, in North Carolina, which was founded by Edith Ferguson Carter, who was a historian who spent her life studying Tom Dooley. They do a Tom Dooley day and have a museum exhibit devoted to his story as well there. So I called the site, spoke to her daughter Helen, and asked her what book on Tom Dooley she recommended. And from there, I was connected to the author we are about to hear. So while I'm usually matched to subjects in a very pedestrian way, occasionally I find a slightly more meandering path. So anyway, let's begin. My guest today is Charlotte Corbin Barnes, who has devoted the last 30-plus years of her life to the subject we are about to discuss. Uh, from what I understand, no one knows more about the lifetimes and death of Tom Dooley than she does. Her book is called The Tom Dooley Files, My Search for the Truth Behind the Legend. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. So tell us first about your connection to this case. Why does it fascinate you so much? Well, I heard about Tom when I was a fifth grader out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I had come down with a... Um, a neurological problem called St. Vitus Dance. I had an abscess tooth that sent a toxin to my brain and gave me a heart murmur. And so they put me to bed for six months. And during that time, my mother expected me to go to, to sleep at sundown so that my heart would heal. And it was at this same time, my only entertainment was the uh, little radio beside my bed. And this was the same time that the Kingston Trio put out the song, Hanged at, well, it was just called Tom Dooley. And I I just literally fell in love with the song, and I, I loved their harmony, so I would sing along with them, and tears would flow. And um, this upset my mother, because she was trying to keep me calm so, so that I would get well. And um, so she didn't really like the song, and... Um, she told me that Tom Dooley didn't really exist, that he was just figment of some songwriter's imagination, and that um, the real Tom Dooley was a, a missionary in China. And um, I did find out that there was a Tom Dooley who was a missionary. He might have been a descendant of the family, but he was not the Tom Dooley from the song. And uh, so I, that winter, I got over uh, the St. Vitus dance. My heart murmur healed, and my parents divorced, and my mother and I moved back to her hometown in in Indiana, Bloomfield, Indiana. And um, I grew up there, um, or went to high school there. I met my husband, and um, put him. We I worked to put him through college. And then he became a um, television um, director, and we ended up in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, in the 1970s. And um, 
we started our own video production uh, company in the 1980s and were looking through the local newspaper for things that uh, might be documented for television. And one, I just opened the second page that I looked at had this title, this headline said, A Woman in the Mountains is Opening a Tom Dooley Museum. And I, it immediately caught my eye, and I thought, could this be my Tom Dooley? And it turned out he was. He was hanged about 60 miles from where we were living in North Carolina. And my first thought was my mother was wrong. He is not a figment of somebody's imagination. That He was real flesh and blood person. And um, I wanted to find out everything I could about him because I was interested in proving my feeling when I first heard the song. My mother said, I don't understand why you're getting so upset about this person. And, and my belief was I think I identified him because the way she had reacted to me getting sick, I just was sure um, that I would die during the night, and tomorrow morning I wouldn't even wake up. So I think I identified with this man that um, this time tomorrow he was going to be dead. And I think that was the first connection that I had. I did not believe that he had actually killed this young girl, who in the song we didn't even know her name. Um, but I wanted to prove his innocence of this terrible, terrible act. And um, I, I told my husband at that time, I said, I have found my project. I am going to find out everything I can about Tom Dooley and prove that he was innocent. So that was my connection with it. So when you began researching this book, you went into it believing he was innocent. Oh, I, I, I believe this when I heard the song. And when I talked with the lady who opened the Tom Dooley Museum, um, she told me that everybody that lived there in Happy Valley, which was the valley Tom had grown up in, everyone there believed that Tom was innocent too, um, that someone else had done the murder and he had been framed for it. So um, I found that uh, to be very uh, encouraging that all of these people believe the way that I did. Where's Happy Valley? Um, it is um, between Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and Lenore. It's in Wilkes County, and um, it's about 13 miles long on Highway 268. And it's been called Happy Valley forever, it seems like, so... Um, his town was first called Yellow Hill, and then they changed it to Elkville, and now it's called Ferguson, which is uh, was named after the grandfather of the lady who was opening the me- museum. Her name was, was Edith Ferguson Carter, and she was an artist and teacher there for many, many years. And um, she was the one, when we got in touch with her, um, we told her we wanted to do a documentary for public television, and she thought that was a great idea. So she put us in touch with about 14 different families whose um, ancestors had been alive during the time that all of this happened. 
and we collected all of their oral histories on the videotape at that time. And um, then my husband's business got so busy that all of these tapes just went under our bed and sat there for 30 years that I continued to do my research. And Edith Carter and I uh, kept up a correspondence. Every time I would discover something new, I'd write to her about it. And so after 27 years, um, she um, challenged me to put, uh, get everything that I had found out in book form. And I said, well, Edith, I I write scripts for television, um, not really. Um, I've never tackled a book. And um, I told her that the only story that I'd know how to tell was uh, how I had discovered the different facts and rumors and everything that I discovered about Tom, um, how I had discovered them, from whom um, I had learned about it, and whether I thought they might be true or not. And she said, well, you've got to get this information out to the public. And uh, so that's I started writing the book, just telling how I had found out everything. So Tom Dooley, his his name was originally pronounced Tom Dula. Correct. It's spelled D-U-L-A. But in the mountain vernacular, um, the same way that they say the Grand Ole Opry, uh, they pronounce any uh, word that ends in an A, they pronounce it with a Y. So his name was spelled D-U-L-A, but it was pronounced Dooley. And now there there are doulas, doulas families, and there are dooley families. And it, in a lot of my research, I went back through old um, census records, and you see it spelled both ways, D-U-L-A and uh, D-O-O-L-E-Y. So they are the same family, but um, over the years there are two different spellings to it. Could you talk about Tom Dooley, uh, his early life? Okay. He was the son of Thomas P. Dula and Mary Keaton Dula. He was their seventh and final child, so he was the baby. His grandfather was Bennett Dula, who was a pioneer of Happy Valley. Um, he and his brother had fought during the uh, Revolutionary War and were awarded land in North Carolina. So they came here and settled. And um, as I said, he was the youngest of seven children. And there were only three boys in the family. And Tom Dula's father died when he was 10 years old in 1854. And so Tom grew up kind of wild. His father had taught him to play the fiddle, and so he played at um, some of the uh, dances in Happy Valley. His father played a lot, and then Tom played um, at some of the rallies after the Civil War when they were trying to put the county back together. They had uh, Democratic rallies and uh, Republican rallies. It was during Reconstruction at that time, and Tom played for the Democrat uh, rallies. And he was uh, kind of a ladies' man, wasn't he? (laughs) Kind of a handsome guy? Well, um, 
I'm not sure he was um, uh, handsome, but there was something about him. We took the cover of the book from a portrait that she did when the song came out, and she had based that upon how the doulas look today, the the ones that were still in the county. Um, she based that on, on how they looked. And um, he has a certain roguish look about him, but the... The ladies really liked him because he was the center of attention of all these parties. He played the fiddle. Uh, when we interviewed Edith's mother-in-law, she said that he could play a fiddle and make it sing like a bird, um, and that he was so good that all, she said, all the women loved Tom Dooley. We met at one time. We actually interviewed Bob Shane from the um, Kingston Trio, and he was kind of upset. He said, oh, all you women, you worship Tom Dooley, but he said, I bet you wouldn't like him so much if you found out that he had syphilis. And I told him at the time, I said, sir, I not only knew, know he had syphilis, I can tell you who gave it to him. <laughs> and he just laughed right out loud and kind of loosened up. He said, I said, I don't really worship Tom. I'm just trying to find out everything I can about him. So he thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the story revolves around his romance with a set of cousins, right? So tell us about these relationships, if you don't mind, um, how they began and how they developed. They talk about Tom falling in love with several women, but I think he only really loved one woman, and that was Ann Foster who was the daughter of his next-door neighbor, Lottie Foster. They met when they were very young. She was one year older than Tom. Uh, this seems to be a uh, something that happens a lot in the mountains. Men tend to get married to women that are older. I don't know if they're more sexually advanced or what, but that does seem to happen over and over. Um, but he fell in love with Ann Foster. Um, now, the story that Edith told us was the one told by her father that they were in love with each other, but the war came along, and he had to go off to the war, and Anne was afraid that he wouldn't come back, so she married an older rich man. And uh, this was one of the first things that I found was not true, because Anne had married James Melton in 1859, which was a full two years before the war even started. But when Edith was telling me that this was a story that her father told her, her father, Thomas Wiley Ferguson, was very much a country gentleman. And um, he wouldn't have told his daughter a story that that included a social disease in it, so they left that out. <laughs> so um, the story that he told was quite different to the one I discovered. Um, as I said, I, I got into this wanting to prove that Tom was innocent, but he was a rascal. Um, he did like the women. The second woman that he supposedly was involved with was Laura Foster, who was um, another, she was a cousin of uh, Anne's. I'm not sure they were really as involved as the legend says, but she was the one who was murdered. 
And um, then the, uh, there was a third woman called Pauline Foster, who was another cousin. Actually, she was also a cousin of Tom. And um, she comes into the picture in the spring of 1866 when she came into Wilkes County. She was supposed to get married, and um, she had contracted syphilis during the Civil War. And um, her uh, the man she was to marry had told her that he wouldn't marry her until she got treatment for the syphilis. And so she needed to get enough money to pay for the doctor's visits and the medicine that she would be taking. So she came to work for her cousin, Anne, and this James Melton. Anne was supposedly the most beautiful girl in the county. And um, she probably had, uh, we don't know who her, who her father was, that she he was probably one of the rich people in the county, and um Anne considered herself a lady, which meant she wouldn't do any of the work around the house and so they hired this Pauline um which is a mountain pronunciation for Pauline, and they hired her, and she did all the milking, all the cooking, all the stuff that a a wife usually would do. And Ann Melton just sat around and was a lady. So, um, but um, they hired her that summer to come and and work for them. And I don't know if they knew that she was sick with syphilis. But um, suddenly, Pauline, who liked to drink a little bit um, at these parties that they were would have. Uh, suddenly, um, syphilis started popping up throughout the county and included Tom. In order to keep their affair private, Pauline had said that she was a blind for um, things that they were doing, and everybody thought that she was actually dating Tom when he was actually coming to see Ann Melton. How old was was Tom when this relationship began? I believe Tom was about 13 years old. Maybe um, I, they may have met uh, when Tom's father died. He was 10 years old at that time. That was uh, 1854. Um, but they um, they were next-door neighbors, so they knew each other while they were very young. But I think their sexual relationship started when he was about 14 and she was maybe 15 going on 16. And I think her mother wanted to, I think it was her mother that suggested that she needed to be married to a, an older man who was had some money. And so I believe it was her mother, Lottie, that suggested that she married as James Melton, who could provide a better life for her. And she told her that um, just because she was marrying James Melton, it didn't mean that she could not still carry on a relationship with Tom. And that's exactly what she did. Um, James Melton was a hard-working man, and he, when he'd come in and eat dinner, Tom would come over and play the fiddle for him. And as soon as he fell asleep, Tom would crawl in bed with Anne. 
and it happened to be a bed that she shared with Pauline. So it was it was not a um, well. I guess it was good for them, but it wasn't great for James. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. One of the people that Edith in, um, introduced me to was she told me about a book that had been written in 1970 by a professor at Appalachian State. And he had grown up in the Happy Valley, too, and heard this legend his whole life. And he was like me. He wanted to find out the truth um, of what really happened. And so in 19, before 1970, he went to the North Carolina State Archives and pulled up what records they had from the trial. And um, so he he wrote a book um, back then that told all about the syphilis and stuff like this that had not come out in the stories that were being told by the fathers that had been alive and passed down to their daughters. You know, it was a completely different story. Um, in fact, when we interviewed him, he said that when I looked at what had been out there in the legend and compared that to the uh, they weren't really transcripts, just notes from the trial. He said, you wouldn't have believed it was the same story. So it it, it just got very complicated. When we interviewed John Foster West, the, um, the professor from Appalachian, he had his own version of what Tom Dooley was like. And he had gone through some of the census records, and he said in 1860 there was no father listed in Tom's family. So he said that Tom, he called him a woods colt, which meant that he did not have a father. He was conceived in the woods, basically. And um, by this time, I had done a little research, and Edith had helped me find a genealogist or somebody that had genealogical information. And um, I waited until the end of our interview with John Foster West, and then I told him the other thing he said about Tom was that he couldn't be buried where everybody said he was because that was a rich man's cemetery. And so at the end of our interview, I was able to tell him that not only did I believe Tom was buried at this place because that was his grandfather, um, that was the family cemetery, um, and I presented him with the name of Tom's father and grandfather and relatives and stuff like this. So it was about two, two, three weeks later, I got a, a letter from John Foster West, and he announced that he was writing a new book, and he wondered if he could use everything that I had told him. And I, I knew that he could possibly find this information, so I told him that if he gave me credit, I would let him use it. And so sure enough, he came out with a second book in um, 1992, I believe it was. And um, he he gave me credit for uh, Tom Dooley's genealogy, but then he didn't get it right. So <laughs> it was kind of still, I still had a book I could write. So <laughs> Sure, sure. So when the Civil War began, Tom Dooley... He joined the Confederate Army. He, he was about 17 or 18 when he enlisted, right? Yes. When the 
Civil War started, James Melton was one of the first to volunteer. He joined um, the 26th Regiment in um, 1861, the year that the um, Civil War started. Uh, Tom did not join until the next year. What had happened was when they started the war, they thought it was going to be a very short war. And so the men signed up for uh, a year. And so um, after this year was up, um, they were having trouble finding men to join the army, the Confederate army. And so they did a big recruitment drive in the mountains. And they came around and told the men that if they would sign up before October of 1862, they would pay them a bonus. And so um, many men signed up in the spring of 1862 just so the family could get some money. And so Tom and his oldest brother, William, signed up at that time. I have a theory as to why they signed up. James Melton had left the area, gone to the war in um, the spring of 1861, and he left Anne with a three-month-old baby um, and went off to the war. And Tom didn't um, join until the spring of 62. And I believe that that, um, the whole reason that he joined was because he was messing around with James Melton's wife uh, while he was off at war, and Tom knew that if she um, became pregnant uh, with her husband gone, that this would not go over very well with the community. So um, I believe William actually forced Tom to join with him, and the two of them went off to the war, and they were in the 42nd um, Regiment. Uh, but they, uh, Tom was here alone. Uh, well, I sh- should say he was here with Ann Melton, freely available while her husband was off at the war, and so his brother was afraid that he would get in trouble if if Ann got pregnant while her husband was gone. So that was a whole. I believe Tom was kind of a reluctant um, rebel. <laughs> He was more. He was interested in music and drinking and parties, and he was a lover, not a fighter. That seems obvious to me that he did not really want to go to the war. How long did he serve? Did he fight in any notable battles? Tom and his brother went off uh, in the spring of '62 in the 42nd Regiment, and. Um, That regiment was used a lot for guarding prisoners at Salisbury Prison, which was south of uh, here. They took an old uh, cotton uh, manufacturing place and they uh, made it into a prisoner war camp for officers, is what it started out as. And... um, Tom's unit guarded there before being sent um, into the Richmond and Petersburg area. In Petersburg, they did a lot of digging because they did the um, trenches around the city where that they would fill them with soldiers to shoot at people trying to take the city. So um, 
a lot of his work was guarding prisoners and building fortifications. They got sent in um, 1863 out to the coast where they uh, were guarding the Wilmington area. And then in January of 64, they tried to help keep the federal troops from taking Fort Fisher, which was on the coast near Wilmington. And they were not successful in that. And so when they fell back... They uh, were captured at Wise's Fork, which is near Kinston, North Carolina, and um, that was a three-day battle. And uh, Tom and his brother and several uh, members of the 42nd were taken uh, prisoner there and um, sent by boat to a prisoner of war camp up in Maryland called Point Lookout. And um, after I got this book written, we have traveled all over three states to gather information. And um, when I went to this Wise's Fork battlefield, there had been a gentleman um, or two gentlemen that had written a book about that battle. That was one of the last battles in North Carolina. And... um, Tom and his brother and several people had been taken prisoner, and they sent them back to New Bern. The coast had been captured, so this was the Union had captured the uh, east coast of North Carolina, so they sent them back by train to New Bern and then put them on a ship to take to Maryland. And um There was a terrible storm that night, and the ship that was accompanying them actually rammed the ship that Tom Dooley and almost 300 prisoners were in and uh, put a hole in the side of the ship beneath the water line, and it started filling um, with water. Now, this boat had been sent to New Bern full of cattle uh, to take to feed the um, federal troops, and they hadn't bothered to clean out all of the mess that was in the bowels of the ship. So when it started filling with water, all of this was mixed with uh, manure and stuff from these cattle. And it was rough seas, and I will say that the Union soldiers that were accompanying them I think they were quite brave in that they, um, in these rough seas, they pulled these 300 men out from this broken ship and put them on the ship that had rammed them and finally got them to Point Lookout, Maryland. But I don't think things improved much there. They were put into this area. It had started out as a uh, resort and um, then they, they had changed it over to a prisoner of war camp, and they were put in um big kind of corral type thing, and they were in tents. There were not enough uh, blankets to go around. There was not enough food. And um, I think uh, the North had gotten so upset about um, the conditions in Andersonville that they were kind of taking it out on the prisoners that they had gotten. And the food was awful. The water was t- 
tainted and um they, it was very poor conditions at this point lookout and um while there Tom's older brother came down with typhoid and he died in uh, let's see it was June 6th of 1865 and Tom took the uh, dreaded oath to the United States government Five days later, he was released on June 11th and uh, taken back to New Bern, uh, where they provided trains. But the train could only go as far as Statesville, which is about 60 miles from Tom's home. When the war was going on, the Union troops had come through and they would tear up the tracks. And uh, they would do what they call Sherman's neckties, they would heat up the uh, rails and then um, bend them around the trees so that they could no longer be used for railroad tracks. And so the um, Tom was only able to get as far as Statesville when he was headed back home. And then he had to find a way from Statesville to Wilkesboro, which I said was about 60 miles. And now a quick word from our sponsor. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, 
every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And now back to the show. So what was the length of time between his arrival back home and the murder that he would be accused of committing? Um, Tom got home about late summer of 1865, and then the murder took place in um, May of 1866, so there was almost a year in there, Um, but there was a lot happening. As I said, this was during the um, Radical Republicans' uh, reconstruction of the South, so there was a lot going on. Um, uh, let's see. When I got to back up to Lincoln's assassination and President Johnson taking over, President Johnson had appointed um, a provisional governor of North Carolina, and he had the task of putting back together. At the end of the war, they had thrown out everybody that was had been elected by the Confederacy. Um, into these uh, county offices and everything clear across the state. So they gave um, William Holden was this gentleman's name. They gave him the provisional governorship, and he had to he had the task of putting back together the government of North Carolina, county by county, until he could arrange for an election. And the election was um, supposed to happen in the fall of 1865. And so they did, they had rallies and stuff like this. Uh, Both sides had their rallies and the men who had served the Confederate nation were not allowed to run for office. And um, it got pretty heated because when they did the election, the North Carolina people still elected men who were not eligible to serve and so as a result of that we did not get back into the union for two years after the war was over but tom dooley played at these rallies for the democrats and um, it was at that time that he sang that song i won't be reconstructed because i don't give a damn that was a song that he had learned at point lookout up in in Maryland, it was just a mess because there was more killing and fighting in the mountains of North Carolina after the war was over um, 
it was like Tom had come home and found out fighting a war wasn't the worst thing that could happen to him. So this is a highly volatile, politically charged climate at this time. Yep. There was a lot of revenge killing going on. I got to say, half of the mountain people did not want to go to war. And it was the same in eastern Tennessee. That was the whole reason that Lincoln had chosen uh, Johnson to be his vice presidential partner the second time he ran. He was hoping to pull Tennessee back into the United States because half of eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina, they were having peace rallies the last two years of the Civil War and defying the Confederacy by sometimes flying the American flag. And they got into all kinds of trouble. There was a a unit called the Red Strings that was underground. They were for the Union, and they were identified by wearing a red string in their lapel. When people would see this red string, they'd know that that person was really for the Union. So after the war was over, people were taking revenge on the people that had hurt their families. The Home Guard in Wilkes County during the last two years of the war would run around uh, trying to catch deserters and uh, people uh, fighting for the Union. Uh, Daniel Ellis was a a Union person who um, recruited Western North Carolina guys to serve in the Union ranks. In fact, um, Colonel Grayson that's in the song, he was a Union officer um, who raised horses to provide the Union troops with um, horses during the war. And when when Tom was being accused of the murder of this girl, he took off to Tennessee. But he was wearing the boots that he had uh, come home from the war in, and the uh, boots fell apart as he was uh, going across the mountains. And so he stopped at this farm to see if he could... Um, work out he said work out a pair of boots and stay there long enough that he could um, afford to buy a pair of boots and so he did that and then the posse that went up into Tennessee when they arrived Tom must have seen them because instead of being able to arrest him they found out that Tom had fled so they talked uh, Colonel Grayson into helping them track Tom down And when they found him, he was in a little place called Pandora, and he was on the Doe River, and he was soaking his feet in the river where these new boots had worn blisters on his feet. And at the time that they went up to arrest him, there were three men in the posse, plus this Colonel Grayson had gone along to help them. And uh, when they found Tom, uh, Colonel Grayson picked up a river rock and said, uh, you better come with me, Tom. These men say you're wanted in North Carolina for the murder of a girl. He said, uh, they also tell me Tom had changed his last name. He claimed his name was Tom Hall. 
when he had gone to work for Colonel Grayson. And uh, he said, they also tell me your name is Tom Dooley. He says, is it true? And he says, yes, it's true that my name is Tom Dooley, but it is not true that I uh, killed this girl. He said, I did not harm a hair on that girl's head. And um, Colonel Grayson said, well, you better come with me and, and we'll take you back to North Carolina to make you get uh, to see that you get a fair trial. So Tom came out of the river, at which time the men in the posse grabbed him and a rope and were going to lynch him uh, right there. And this was the only time that Colonel Grayson pulled his uh, pistol out of his pocket, fired it in the air to stop the uh, posse from lynching Tom. And he said, he is my prisoner and I am taking him back to North Carolina. He said, it's time that law and order comes back to these mountains, and I'm going to make sure that Tom Dooley gets a fair trial. So um, that was part of the story I didn't know about, that Tom had been saved by a, a Union officer. So Colonel Grayson is mentioned by name in the famous Kingston Trio Tom Dooley song, and it is suggested in the song that he was a rival for the affections of Laura Foster. Yes, when I first heard the song, the girl's name was never mentioned, and I just assumed these two men were romantic interests of this girl. But uh, Colonel Grayson never even met Laura Foster that I know of. He had been a Union officer and had served uh, in eastern Tennessee, um, but uh, one of the people that we interviewed was Sam Mass Jr., who uh, was related to Carson Dula, who was supposedly Tom's best friend. And he said, and he planted um, in my mind the information. Uh, he said that the research that he had done um, had said that Laura Foster had been a union sympathizer and that the, this had been the reason she had been killed, um, which opened a whole different can of worms. Um, I do not believe that Tom Dooley was uh, really going to marry um, Laura Foster. Um, I believe all of this came up after she was murdered and was used to uh, pin the murder on Tom. I don't believe he was even at the murder site when it happened. There was a washerwoman that testified that she had seen Laura on the morning she was escaping to marry Tom. And she said that Laura had said that she was going to the Bates place to meet Tom because they were running off to be married. And um, Laura was killed at the Bates place. But what came out in the uh, testimony at the trial was that Tom had been sent on a wild goose chase that morning. Um, he was out flanking Manly Barnes's house. Now that's a name that comes into this only in the trial. Manly Barnes was a man who had served. They had forced him to join the 42nd toward the end of the war and then he went over the mountain as they called. He defected and went to the Union troops in Knoxville. And um, then the war was over, so they just sent him back home. 
but he was kind of a troublemaker. In fact, uh, one of his daughters was one of the girls that Tom Dooley was messing around with was Caroline Barnes, and she happened to be Manly Barnes's daughter. So I think when he was sent on this wild goose chase, they also sent a note to Laura. She thought the note was from Tom, and he said to meet him at the Bates place, and they'd run off and get married. So she was headed there. And uh, when she got there, the only people she found was Ann Melton and Perline Foster. And one of the people that we interviewed was the race car driver, Morgan Shepard. And he is Ann Melton's great-great-grandson. And um, he had not heard anything about the uh, story. They didn't talk about it in his family. But when the song came out... They talked about it more, and he said that, well, actually, we interviewed his mother, too, and she said that when she married Clay Shepard, it was Clay's mother that told her what had happened when the murder happened, and that Ann Melton had held a knife up to Laura's chest, and this Perline had hit that knife with a pine knot and drove it into her heart. And um, I said, why would they have done that? And she said, well, I I think it was so that they could say, I didn't kill Laura Foster. No, and the other one could say, well, I didn't. It, it took the two of them to kill Laura Foster. It was kind of unusual. But then the story came out about Laura being a union sympathizer. And at the trial, the... Confederate governor of North Carolina turned out to be Tom's attorney. And during this trial, he kept referring to Laura Foster as being a viper in our midst. And that's what led me to believe Sam Mass' story about her being a union sympathizer. And that might have been what really led to her death. So you think... Ann Melton murdered her because she was a union sympathizer? I mean, it seems plausible that it could have just been jealousy as well, do you think? I believe there was more than just these two women after Laura. I think there, the the clan was uh, beginning in North Carolina to really kick up its heels. And um, I believe that they were after Laura, and I think Ann Melton uh, was after Laura because she had been told that Laura Foster was the one that gave Tom the pox. So I think there were two different factions against this Laura Foster. And once that she ended up dead, the Klan kind of went into the background and didn't say anything, and um, they pinned everything. Well, everything in the trial was based on Perlene's evidence. Perlene turned state's evidence, and she said, I'll tell you everything I know. Well, she told everything that she knew that didn't get her in trouble. And she got, um, Anne was arrested and Tom was arrested. Well, Perlene had been arrested also, but they, since she turned state's evidence, they let her go. And only Anne and Tom faced trial. Now, as I said, the 
their attorney had been the Confederate governor of North Carolina, Zebulon Vance. And everybody says that he uh, came to defend Tom because Tom was a good Confederate soldier. But what they don't know was I believe that he actually came because of James Melton, who served in his 26th Regiment. Tom was in the 42nd and was never in Vance's regiment, but uh, James Melton was. And James Melton had been a hero at Gettysburg. He had been one of the 14 men that had been shot carrying the 26th flag. And um, I believe that he came uh, not to defend Tom, but to defend Anne, so that she would get off and could come home to this gentleman who had been a hero at Gettysburg. Um, it's complicated. It really gets complicated. Had the Union taken control of the Carolina courts at this point? Had they installed their own judges? They were in the process of doing that. The whole prosecution uh, were Republicans. And all of the Tom's side were Democrats and headed, well, it was supposed to be headed by this Zebulon Vance. Um, he's an interesting character, too. Um, he, um, let's see, how do I get into this? <laughs> um, he was very much a Southern Democrat. And um, on the um, the prosecution side was uh, all Republicans, and when you study what happened after the war, all of these Republicans became very powerful until about 1876, when there, the South started to rise again. The Democratic South started to rise again, and they were all uh, voted back into office. And at this time was when the Jim Crow laws were voted in over the years, but that's when they started, where they um, were putting the black man back in his place and stuff like this. It was uh, very vicious. I guess the part I don't understand is that if Melton wanted to defend Anne by hiring Vance, why would Vance be defending Tom Dooley? I mean, if he wanted to get Dooley off, acquitted, and it had happened, then wouldn't the attention then have been focused upon Anne instead as an alternative suspect? Oh, yes. But uh, Vance thought he could get... um, During the war, um, he was elected the Confederate governor by a landslide when um, Governor Ellis died in 62. Uh, Vance was elected by a landslide. But by 64, when he came up for a re-election, um, half of the state wanted to make peace with the North, and the other half of the state uh, were rebels. But in the mountains in Wilkes County, Vance did not win the governor t- uh, governor's race. Um, he um, Holden did. The man who uh, Johnson appointed as the provisional governor had won that race. So when um, Tom and Ann came up for trial, Vance, the first thing Vance did was said, we will separate these two, uh, we will try these two people separate. 
and um, we're going to try Tom first because Anne is going to admit to such horrible things. We don't want him to run off, uh, rub off on Tom. And so he split the two um, defendants. He split their trials. He also moved the trial from Wilkes County to Iredale County, which is the county just um, east of Wilkes. But in that county, he had carried um, the governor's race. He was very popular in in Iredale County, so he thought he could get a better jury in Iredale than he could get in Wilkes. And so uh, he had the trial moved to Iredale. And he, um, there were two trials. Uh, oh, first they were going to try Tom and get him off. And then they would, uh, as Vance said, then we'll try the guilty party. And so th- they tried Tom first. And the jury that uh, Vance chose was all made up of all ex-Confederate soldiers. And he thought he could get Tom off. As I said, he talked about Laura um, being vile. Um, He used the pox in the trial saying that she had seduced Tom and given him this horrible disease. And then he used that term about she had been a viper in her midst. And he fully expected he was going to get Tom off, but he didn't. Um, they deliberated overnight and came back and said Tom was guilty. And I think it's because all of them, uh, as I said, Tom was a rascal. And um, I think all of these, there was so much revenge killing and fighting going on that I believe these ex-soldiers who'd had enough of war were more like um, Colonel Grayson and they wanted to bring law and order back to North Carolina, and I think they just declared him guilty um, to get rid of this rascal, basically. But anyway, uh, Vance did an appeal, and uh, so Tom got a second trial, and he filled the jury again with ex-Confederate soldiers, and this time they deliberated even a shorter amount of time and um, found Tom guilty. So uh, then uh, Vance appealed again a third time, but the courts in North Carolina had been changed to more uh, Republican, and uh, this time they came back and said, uh, even though, um, oh, well, i got to back up a little bit. During the trial, they allowed this testimony by Perline, and she told um, things that were hearsay, um, if Judge Judy had been judging this, uh, it would have never been allowed. But um, they allowed uh, Perline's testimony, um, and um, she basically she was the one that told that the the washer woman had said that Laura had said that she was uh, going to meet Tom. Well, of course, this was. Uh, nobody could verify that testimony, um, but they allowed it. And um, the Supreme Court came back w- saying, we're not sure why the judge allowed this, but since we weren't there, we're going to go along with the judge. And they allowed it. So they said, uh, Tom will be hanged in two weeks' time. And when they uh, were going to do um, 
Ann's trial. They moved it back to Wilkes County, and um, they couldn't even find any witnesses to come testify against her. And um, so they said, well, she's been in jail for two years, so and we think that's punishment enough, and we'll just let her go. So she came home to her husband. Um, I I talk on so much, I almost forget the question. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. So the part about Laura running away with Tom... We, we kind of glossed over that a little bit, but it seems a pretty important part of the story. Do you think Tom was really getting ready to run off with her? There were rumors, right, that, that she was pregnant with Tom's baby, too. Uh, Laura being pregnant was totally a rumor. Uh, according to Dr. Carter, um, Laura was not pregnant. And even if she had been, there was so much of this going on in the mountains. Um, I'm sure Tom's mother would have welcomed um, Laura Foster into her home, um, even with a baby. I mean, this this went on all the time in the mountains. So it, it, there was no reason for them to run off to get married, um, unless it would have been just to get away from Anne, and she didn't have a leg to stand on because she was married to someone else. Um, during the the trial, and I think this was a ploy used by Governor Vance, during the whole time the trial was going on, the state was about to ratify a new constitution. And in this new constitution, Um, Blacks had a lot more uh, freedom than they had had before, and they were going to be allowed to testify in courts where they had not been before. And this washerwoman that had said she had talked to Laura, she was half black. And um, I believe um, during the trials, I think Governor Vance got, he was using the fact that she was half black to make sure that her testimony would not be allowed because that uh, Constitution had not yet been ratified. So her testimony under the old Constitution wasn't even legal. So uh, I think he used that to try uh, to um, make her testimony null and void. But the jury heard it, so... uh, they ruled against Tom, but all of that was hearsay. Do you think that Tom knew who killed Laura? Do you think that he suspected it was Anne? And do you think he could have saved himself by accusing Anne instead? I I learned so much after the publishing of this first book. Edith had told me once I get this first book out, Um, then I could publish that novel that I had always wanted to write. And so in the novel, I bring out things that I found out after the publishing of this first book. I believe that Tom Dooley was actually the father of Anne's baby, that she went, um, James Melton went off to the war, I believe that three-month-old baby that she was left with was actually Tom's, or at least they knew it could have been actually Tom's. And Tom was raised um, without a father. He, his father died when he was 10, 
and he saw how difficult it had been for his mother to raise seven children without a husband. I believe that Tom took the blame because he had told a lie on Laura when he told the doctor that he had caught the pox from Laura Foster when he had actually caught it from Perline. So he was, that's the only honorable thing he did. I think he went to the gallows to save Anne so that their baby would not grow up without a mother. Were you able to find primary sources to support this, or are you just speculating on this? I'm I am basically speculating. Um, I don't know for sure. Without DNA, I don't know how we'd prove that that first baby was actually Tom's instead of Melton's. Um, I know James Melton wouldn't have cared who was the father of that child. He loved that little girl so much because she looked so much like her mother. And um, the the novel allowed me to solve several of my mysteries myself. Was there anything eventful about his execution? Did it go smoothly from the perspective of his prosecutors? Tom was, um, like I said, he'd been in jail for two years. On the day of his execution, he was taken from the jail. They had told his family if they wanted him not to be buried in a pauper's grave, they needed to bring a casket to the hanging. So his sister and brother-in-law brought a casket down from Wilkes County. And um, when they got the casket uh, into Statesville, they took the casket and placed it on a, a specially prepared wagon where the back gate had been taken off and the side gates had been taken off of this wagon. And they lashed the coffin to the wagon. And then when they brought Tom out of the jailhouse, they put the noose around his neck and then put him on top of the coffin, on top of the wagon, and um, lashed his feet under the the coffin so that he could not jump off and um, drove him the two miles up to the place of execution where um, uh, Sheriff Wasson asked if he wanted to speak to the crowd, and he did. He did not get to speak at all during his trial, or either one of his trials, and they told him he could talk to the crowd, and he talked for an hour before he was hanged. And uh, it was unusual that he asked about the election that had just been held, and it was the, during that election that they ratified that new constitution, which would have allowed, would have allowed that girl to testify. Um, and when he found out that uh, Governor Holden had been elected, the, the provincial governor, they said that he made blasphemous statements. Um, I have no idea what they were. The um, newspaper man did not quote him at all but what has come down through the legend is he raises his hands up in the air and says do you see this hand does it tremble it does not he said I am innocent of this crime I did not harm one hair on that girl's head and I find it strange that he doesn't 
this is what makes me think he wasn't romantically in, involved with Laura because he didn't even use her name. He said, I did not harm one hair on that girl's head. Oh, that's so interesting. So where can people find out more information about you and find out more about your book? The first book we self-published, and it is not on Amazon or anything. The second, the novel that I wrote that has some things that are not in the first book, um, it is on Amazon under the name Dooley. Um, It's in uh, quotation marks, D-O-O-L-E-Y, and then exclamation point. And um, there are uh, things in there that um, are not in the first book. Now, we are in the process of preparing the first book to get on Amazon, but the first book was almost 500 pages, and it is uh, we're having to thin it down a bit because it had pictures and stuff in it. Um, if anybody is interested in that book, it is at, uh, we have a website at www.thetomdooleyfiles.com. And we have a few of those books left before we get it uh, redone to get on Amazon. Well, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're quite welcome. I feel like I rambled, but uh, it is so complicated. Everybody's related to everybody else. And um, like I say, I don't think Tom was actually romantically involved with Laura, but I I think the true love of his life was Anne Foster Melton. Again, I have been speaking to Charlotte Corbin Barnes, and she is the author of The Tom Dooley Files, My Search for the Truth Behind the Legend. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.